Yowie wowie. We are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Dada, with your AEW All Out 2023 instant analysis and a full reaction to the firing of CM Punk. That's right, Getting Over is back once again for our 10th episode in the last two weeks. This has been an absolutely wild ride, but I am here. Vintage Chris Manini will be along momentarily, and we have an absolute ton to discuss on today's show. So much that I'm legitimately getting started right away with a reminder that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, don't forget. I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for five bucks a month or $50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Please visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. Subscribe really is what I'm trying to say. Uh, You will get bonus audio, news posts, and your financial contributions support the continuation of this podcast. Please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, and highlights. But especially on pay-per-view and premium live event weeks, you get to vote in our pre- and post-show polls, and we utilize your votes in these instant analysis podcasts. You will hear that later when we give our final grades for AEW All Out. As we do special here on these instant analysis episodes, they always happen late at night, usually vintage and the Silver King. We're a little tired. So to perk ourselves up, we crack open a cold one. And I am rocking with baked apple sour from Cascade Brewing in Portland, Oregon. I'll tell you, I looked at the bottom of this can. I don't know how it happened. It's two years old, but I'm hoping I'll be okay. It sounds great. It smells great. Vintage, what do you got over there? I have, I know yesterday on the payback uh, instant analysis, I said all I had left in my fridge was Mike's Hard Lemonade. That was not true. I scrounged around the back. My wife still had, we still had some New Glarus Spotted Cow from Wisconsin in the back of the fridge. This too is probably a bit old, but I've already opened it and it tastes fine. So, okay. I'm good. We're, we're crossing our fingers that we make it through the show without, you know, vomiting or something. Although there's a topic later we may want to vomit about. Nevertheless, we have a ton to get to today. As Chris just mentioned, we did have a WWE payback instant analysis episode that is in the podcast feed right now. So be sure you do not miss that. We had an entire week of shows and coming up this week, we have another WWE episode on Tuesday and an AEW NXT episode on Thursday. But before we get to any of that, we need to talk AEW All Out and the firing of CM Punk. Now, what we have decided to do tonight is this. Because so many wrestlers and so many talented people in AEW put on, not only do they put on a a very entertaining show, but they worked so hard to do it. We do not want our takes and the situation, the circumstances surrounding the firing of CM Punk to overshadow any of that. So we are going to kick the show off with our AEW All Out Instant Analysis, even though that, of course, came after the firing of CM Punk. We're going to talk the Instant Analysis now. We're going to break down the entire card with our thoughts on each match, some grades, and we're going to grade the entire show. And then in the second half of this episode, we will have a lengthy, I promise you, discussion about the firing of CM Punk. We will have timestamps in our episode description. So if you want to listen to one part or the other, you can make 
the show in whatever order you want, but that is how we decided to do it tonight. With that said, Chris, let's jump right into it. AEW All Out Instant Analysis. I did want to note off the top, I'm not going to grade every single match tonight, and I'm doing it as a means of saving time, but I am grading the most important ones. Also, Chris, off the top, I think we just need to give a shout out to that Chicago crowd. If they wanted to, they could have hijacked the show with CM Punk chants. They did a couple Punk chants in a very short period of time. But other than that, I thought they were a fantastic crowd Sunday night. Terrific crowd. And it was a reminder. I was going to save this for the end. Mm -hmm. But that crowd and what they did tonight was a reminder that they are fans of AEW, that we are fans of AEW for the wrestling for everybody in AEW, not just CM Punk. Right. AEW was around before CM Punk. It was successful before him. It will be successful after him. And the crowd reaction in a, in a situation that could have been very volatile, it wasn't. And it was a reminder of why we like this company. And again, because I will talk about this later, this is what we were saying a year ago. This is why you didn't have to worry that much about CM Punk, because you have this kind of fan base that will rally around your company. You saw that happen in Chicago. And by the way, you said AEW was successful and, and you know entertaining and all that before CM Punk. They were successful and entertaining in Chicago before CM Punk, and they will be after CM Punk as they were Sunday night. So let's get to it. We're going to break down the entire card. We'll start where All Out ended, the International Championship Orange Cassidy against John Moxley. And as we break down each of these matches, there are some things that happened on Rampage and Collision. They were both go-home shows. The Silver King, just so you know, watched eight hours of professional wrestling on Sunday to make sure we had everything ready for the show. So we're going to get into all that, and we will talk about Collision and Rampage as it is pertinent for each match. So on Collision, Mox cut a backstage promo. It put over Cassidy and his title reign in a major way. He called him the real deal. Mox said it was a unique chance to end the run of a lifetime and promised to attack Orange's internal gumption rather than his physical being. He also had a veiled shot at Punk. Quote, a lot of these guys think they want to be wrestlers. They want to be perceived as great wrestlers, but they don't really want to be great wrestlers. Once it gets hard, they look for a way out. A plus expert level promo for Mox. Orange answered later saying the title match is special because he's gone toe to toe with some of the best wrestlers. Now he gets Mox who picked up AEW when he was down. Uh, Orange then promised to beat Mox and put the weight of carrying AEW on his own shoulders instead. Solid promo, not as good as his on Wednesday, still solid. Let's get to the match. So Orange bladed before Mox and Mox didn't blade in the entire match. Four minutes in. Uh, Mox went after it by biting the cut as per usual. Good job by the referee yelling for Mox to get inside the ring. They were outside for like two minutes straight. When Orange crawled back inside, he was literally gushing blood out of his forehead. So Mox bit it again. Orange was exhausted, fighting back. So Mox mocked him with hands in his pants. Orange bit Mox's head, hit a diving DDT and tornado DDT. Cassidy hit a PK and an orange punch. Mox came back with a gotch pile driver, bulldog choke, armbar, and label lock. Then he ripped up the padding at ringside. Orange countered a pile driver into beach break on the concrete, then drop kicked Mox's head into the steel steps. Cassidy hit two orange punches, but Mox countered a third into an RKO out of nowhere. Quick pause. I was very surprised with all these orange punches and the hand injury and everything they've been doing. He didn't sell a hand injury once the entire match. I thought that was interesting. Orange then countered a paradigm shift into an orange punch and ran the ropes for a spear false finish. Cassidy did his gimmick, but turned into real kicks. Then he no-sold a lariat. Mox clubbed him over the head and hit Death Rider for a shoulder move false finish. 
Mox then crossed himself. Orange gave him double birds and Mox hit another Death Rider for the one, two, three to win the title in 19 minutes. Orange looked like an absolute beast here in defeat. Mox dominated from start to finish, though, and he rightly won the title. He was the perfect person to end Cassidy's reign, which, yeah, it was inflated with a lot of stupid defenses, but he also put on a variety of tremendous matches as part of this reign. There was a good shot in the post-match of Orange's empty backpack. Blackpool Combat Club basically carried Mox out. Orange also got a chant and a standing ovation as blood continued to spill from his head as All Out went off the air. On a show, Chris, that had three incredible matches. This, I think, was still the right main event. It was the perfect mix of brutality and high-quality wrestling, emotion, storytelling. It got Orange over even further in defeat, and Mox sold the hell out of the beating he took. Different people like different things. And what speaks to the overall quality of All Out is there were three legitimate match-of-the-night contenders, depending what you like most. I personally think this one topped the list for me, largely because it was one of the three that featured the cleanest, most substantial finish. I'm at 4.75 stars and an A+. The only reason I'm not at five was the all that blood in the start and the concentration on biting the head and all that. I didn't feel like there was enough wrestling in the early going, but that set the stage for the remainder of the match. I really believe I'm going to watch, rewatch, I should say, these three matches again and then regrade them compared to each other because one of them has to be five stars. They were all so damn good, and I don't have any of them at five stars initially here, um, but again, it's late. We do this quick. I don't get to sit and ruminate on it, but 4.75 stars, A+, and for me, my match of the night. Same here, 4.75 match of the night. And it's because it wasn't honestly as gory as I thought it would be. Because Mm -hmm. remember, we're one week out from all in or one week away from all in where you've got things sticking out of Mox's head. Mm -hmm. They're being like jammed and stabbed into the top of his head. Way worse stuff happened to Orange Cassidy a week ago that when this happened, it felt tame compared to what we often get a complete miracle that Mox didn't bleed. And I think it was so important that he didn't bleed because he wasn't the story of this match. Story of this match was Orange Cassidy going through hell and giving everything he could to to hold up against this multiple-time AEW world champion who's Mm -hmm. a psychopath. And he did. And he basically got Mox's respect in the process. This is one of the few storylines and matches that told a great story start to finish. Like it wasn't just doing wrestling moves. It was telling a story throughout. And Orange Cassidy comes out of this technically the loser, but it sure didn't feel that way. No, it did not. And that is a remarkable, that is a remarkable accomplishment for him, for Mox, for AEW. And this is the value of not rushing things, of putting the work in, of putting time in. Mm -hmm and making something matter before you do something big. And they completely delivered on this uh, five-star story, without a doubt. The match itself, I'm probably like a 4.75. But this was terrific, absolutely worthy, should have been the main event like we thought it would be. Mm -hmm. And this this is the be- this this is the best of AEW, like this kind of stuff, Correct. this stuff, the Adam Cole MJF stuff. It's not 
six mans that, that go crazy and have a lot of flashy moves. Like this is the stuff that you invest in and it means more when it happens. Yeah, no, you're a thousand percent right about that. We also discussed on the ultimate preview. This was one of like three matches that truly had storyline build. It's one thing to create a storyline in a week or two, but this was told over multiple months, not just the title reign, but Mox and Orange having issues with each other. And it just, it all built up into this moment. The only thing I thought was missing was they spent so much time on this hand and that it was broken and the orange punch doesn't have as much effectiveness when he uses it and all this type of stuff. And Mox, I know he said in the promo, I'm going to go after your soul, not your body. Like, I understand that was the context. And that's what he did in the match, to be fair. But I don't understand why no wrestler attacked this hand. Like, why didn't someone go Pete Dunn on this thing and just beat the ever-loving shit out of it so he couldn't even throw the move? So I just found that part of the whole story. It's almost like they went away from it, like they were going to tell a story with it, and then they stopped. But that's a minor, minor gripe. This match was fantastic. Let's move on. We have a ton to get to tonight. Kenny Omega against Kanosuke Takeshka. Omega was dropped straight on his head early. It was one of three times during this show that that happened, and it was really scary. That was like 2021 AEW, where that happened all the time, and it was really unsettling. But he seemed okay coming back. He hit a nice jump moonsault off the barricade. Takeshka focused on the head, dropping him into the turnbuckles and hitting a brainbuster outside. The referee prevented Takeshka from using a chair. So Don Callis stacked four of them on Kenny's chest and Takeshka did a senton over the ropes outside into him. Then he hit an awesome blue thunderbomb. There was also a really cool spot where he missed a jumping knee, but ricocheted off the turnbuckle falling outside. Omega came back with a poison Rana. They each flipped out of German suplexes. Omega hit a great powerbomb and two V-triggers. Takeshka countered one-winged angel into a cradle driver and a German. They teased an avalanche one-winged angel. And when they didn't do it, they actually got booze, which I thought was pretty funny because everyone wanted to see it. But then Takeshka took Omega off the top with a really sick avalanche blue thunderbomb for a false finish. That made up for it. Callus failed trying to stab and... and probably murder uh, Omega with a screwdriver. He went for his head to the point that the screwdriver actually got stuck in the canvas. Omega hit a ripcord knee and a V-trigger. Takeshka then grabbed the screwdriver as he was like leaning over the ropes. So he tried to use it like, I think it was Pac did when Omega picked him up in One-Winged Angel, but the referee saw it, took it away. Takeshka rolled through One-Winged Angel. Uh, They exchanged pinning combinations and then Takeshka hit a deadlift German suplex and a knee for another false finish. Then he just drilled Omega with an exposed knee and got the one, two, three in 22 minutes. This was just an absolute total banger in every sense of the word. Literally the only minor criticism is the finish kind of felt flat given it was just a knee. And it came after a match with a European uppercut for the finish. So you can't really do that back to back. If you're going to do one, You don't want to do the other. Mm -hmm. And this is coming off payback, Chris, where we talked about how Seth Rollins and uh, Shinsuke Nakamura, their match ended kind of flat, where otherwise you're praising it to no end. But then it's like you're not delivering that final moment that we all really want. But other than that, this was outstanding. And not only that, Takeshka, I mean, he basically got a clean win. Like, sure, Callis got involved, but the screwdriver never got used. The chair spot was really early in the match. And... Takeshka was the one who basically out-wrestled Omega and got the win. It was a star-making moment for Takeshka. Credit to Omega for putting him over. 
Uh, it was completely counter to the expectations we discussed on the Ultimate Preview of Takeshko winning at All-In and Omega winning at All-Out. It plays into Callis's claims of Takeshka being better than Omega. And we have reason for a rematch, which we're probably going to get at that Wrestle Dream show. It was an A-plus match as well. I'm probably at 4.75 due to the flat finish, but it's by a hair. If you have five-star for Orange and Mox, no hate, totally legit. For me, both of them were different. 4.75 star A plus matches. Yeah, it's more like a 4.5 here. I was pleasantly surprised that that Takeshka gets the win. You know, I thought going into All In, the uh, the Golden Elite would win there, and then Takeshka would get the singles win on All Out. Instead, Takeshka won both of them. And <laughs> he got the pin on both of them. So yeah, total star making moment for him. So good for him. He's I he's not really my cup of tea, but this is working like this is totally working. And, and another point to the quote unquote flat finish is mm-hmm. that Takeshka doesn't have a like entrance theme, you know? So when he wins, you're stunned and then you're just kind of getting that droning noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't feel like a big moment as much. It actually worked better here than it did at all. In. I like it uh, when it happens. I, I personally like it. Maybe I don't like Jack Perry's I, music, I like but it. I like this. Yeah, I agree. I, I like it when it after like an impactful yes finish. as a punctuation Whoa. yes exactly yeah yeah but when it's like a roll-up finish it all in right you know it doesn't quite fit so it, it did work better here so really great match uh kenny omega does not need to be taking these kinds of bumps anymore especially with what he's gone through so please be careful kenny but dude dude put Takeshka over basically clean in chicago and that's aew trying to make a new young star mm-hmm. that's a good thing So next up, we had Ricky Starks in a strap match against an opponent that was to be announced because we knew it would not be 70-year-old Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. So on collision, after Khan's fine speech, uh, Starks and Big Bill were first out. Starks cut a passionate promo as he always does. It sounded babyface, which was strange given the storyline. He issued a challenge to Ricky Steamboat, saying he wanted an answer from the Dragon. So Steamboat came down with a contract saying he didn't complain about what Starks did to him, and instead he got a contract made with Starks' name and the Dragon's name, which we could see the contract actually said that. Starks signed it, and then Steamboat revealed there was another Dragon, introducing Brian Danielson, who made his return with Starks absolutely shocked, and fans chanted, you fucked up. Danielson, who was a baby face, but still wore the Blackpool Combat Club jacket, signed, Starks accepted the bed that he made for himself, And this was a really hot moment. It was a good way to save the match. Obviously, CM Punk was supposed to be in this match. Hangman Page, I thought, would be more interesting. But this made much more storyline sense. And ultimately, as you're about to find out, was a far better call than Hangman Page would have been. Danielson got a great reception also. I was a little confused, though, Chris. If he was not cleared for all in with a broken arm, it must have been tenuous with Tony like saying, hey, maybe you could get cleared, but... I can't start a storyline with you and then have you not get cleared. So we're not going to do it. The goal clearly was Danielson returning for this Wrestle Dream show because that's next month in Seattle and he's from Aberdeen, Washington. So clearly that was going to be his first match back. And they obviously you know, pulled the uh, emergency cord here and got him in for this. It was just so weird for him not to be at all in and then to actually wrestle at all out. Yes, I I don't. Yeah, you're right. I mean, my thought is, look, punks out. We need a big name, someone they're going to cheer. 
Brian Danielson, we got to call you up. If it if it had been Hangman replacing Punk with kind of everything between them, it would have been amazing. I don't know if that would have just gone over well. Danielson was the guy who was going to get cheered, yeah. so it made sense to do him. Just like Mox is the guy you call up when something goes wrong, mm-hmm. Brian Danielson is, again, that guy. For sure. So let's get to the match. Danielson had a great promo during the pre-show. He referenced his last uh, strap match against someone he loved. That was Bray Wyatt. Very sweet of him to do that. We tweeted it if you missed it so you can check our feed. Uh, Brian got the full final countdown entrance and was completely filleted by Excalibur on commentary to the point that it was made abundantly clear that he is the CM Punk replacement, not just here, but going forward, which is something else we talked about AEW doing on all these you know, rants and, and conversations I've had. You don't need CM Punk because you have Brian Danielson. This was proof of it. And it was ironic that a second company is now turning to Danielson after breaking with Punk, obviously WWE having previously done that. As far as the match goes, Starks refused to get strapped up early. Instead, he used a weight belt against Danielson. And Brian immediately started bleeding before the bell even rang. This is a new AEW record. Blood at negative 30 seconds before a match. (laughs) Brian had a full crimson mask by the time the bell rang. He beat Starks with the strap and then choked him in the tree of woe. Uh, Then Brian beat him against the ring post with Starks blading at some point. Starks then went wild, beating the shit out of Danielson's head and neck with the strap. Brian ended up pulling like a rope dope taking a lot of punishment until Ricky was exhausted. Then he answered Starks doing the same thing. Big Bill ran in to attack Danielson. So 70-year-old Steamboat jumped off commentary and somehow beat him up. Danielson threw Starks into Bill and then splashed both of them. Starks countered the running knee with a spear false finish. Brian then escaped Rochambeau and ducked Starks for the psycho knee false finish. Danielson then kicked Starks' head in and choked him with the strap in the label lock, very much, you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Bloodstone type of situation, uh, until he passed out for the knockout win in 17 minutes. This was an excellent match, bell to bell. Miles better than the punk match would have been. And you know this, man. It was strap heavy in that the largest most consistent portions of the match were literally them folding up the strap and just beating the shit out of each other with it. And I'm not saying that's bad at all. The shots were striking visually and they made this extremely violent and exciting. It was a star making moment for Starks, just like that earlier match was for Takeshka. And it was probably Ricky's best match ever. He came off tough and gutsy by passing out instead of tapping. And you guys know I criticize like the endless knockout type of finishes or pin trap combination finishes in AEW. But this is the situation where it's appropriate to do it. This is exactly why you don't do it all those other times, because you want it to have more effectiveness here. This is a borderline grade for me because it's all about individual tastes. I'm at 4.5 stars and an A just because for it to be an A plus match, I would have wanted more wrestling and less reliance just on the blood and the violence of the strap, the sound of the strap. They, They did lean on that a little bit too much. That's me. I'm sure others will say it's A+. Good for you. Uh, But either way, it was outstanding. And again, one of three matches on this show that we just talked about, all of which could be a match of the night, all of which could have main evented, although I still think they picked the right one with Orange and Mox. Yeah, I I mean, you don't make this the main event when it was booked, you know, on collision the day before. And they're just, you know, as the last minute person to put in. This had to be the most violent strat match I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Maybe just has ever been happened. The strikes to the face 
my God, that was brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I kept wondering, like, oh, Brian Danielson's back. How much is he cleared? How violent is this match going to really be? Is it going to be safe? And nope, nope, they went all out. <laughs> they, they went absolutely all out. So uh, props to Brian Danielson, I guess. The finish is interesting because I think on the Ultimate Preview, I picked Starks no matter who it was, I said. Mm-hmm. And I still kind of feel like he should have won. But I'm also torn because you're right. This is like the one place to actually use the pass out finish. And Starks does look better for it. Mm-hmm. I guess the question is, does Starks look better for this than if he would have won? I'm not well, sure. Well, no. Especially since no. Beating Brian, beating Brian and Danielson is better than losing to Brian Danielson. I mean, just. The ability yeah. to beat the guy. So just, He's a WrestleMania main eventer. He won the he won the WWE championship in the main event of WrestleMania. It's more important to beat yeah. him, but it doesn't mean that losing to him is bad, though. I mean Unless you unless you don't really have plans coming for Ricky Starks. I, I still feel like maybe he should have won this, especially with Danielson just coming back. Mm-hmm. Like it's a built-in, you know, excuse for, for Danielson. But what was it? There was one other match in in uh, it was when he beat it was when he beat Jericho. It was when Ricky Starks beat Jericho, and then they had no plans for him after that. Right. And so he basically had to rebuild himself up again, which is what his promo was, you know, before this. Mm-hmm. So he looked great here. I hope they have plans for him moving forward. Me too. Again. I'm more confident that they do in this situation than last time. Also, they're kind of undergoing this transition. And there was a lot of young talent that went over both in wins and losses in the show. We'll talk about that later. So I'm pretty confident that they have plans for Ricky, but you're right. That is kind of the thing. It's, it's okay, this was great, and we're really happy for him, but what's next? And last time that we've asked that, the other times that we've asked that, the answer has been nothing. So let's hope it's something this time. Let's move to the Ring of Honor Tag Team Championships. Yes, we are talking about them that early in this card because better than you, Bebe, of course, are the champions, and they were defending against a to-be-announced opponent. Well, Dark Order earned this spot by winning a battle royal on Rampage, beating Aussie Open and Best Friends in the final three on the battle royal. John Silver won the match solo. Best Friends coming off a huge win at All In felt to me like they should have been the choice, but I also thought this was going to be a totally legitimate match, and it really wasn't. On Collision, Dark Order basically told us the reason that they were made the challengers is because Silver used to be friends with Cole and Alex Reynolds trained MJF. This might have actually worked as like a mini storyline, but they worked backwards, telling it. Cole answered them later. He read a text from MJF that shit on Dark Order, had some things he wouldn't say. It was a funny little segment. Anyway, let's get to the match. This opened the show. The champions came out in Michael Jordan-inspired shirts. MJF kept selling his neck injury with Reynolds, nailing MJF in the neck with a chair. uh, Trainers then ran out and checked on him. So it became a handicap match for a while with Cole also getting attacked by Evil Uno. Basically, it was three on one. Dark Order hit double clothesline for, I guess you would call it a false finish. When Cole got a hope spot, MJF returned, got a huge ovation. He hit kangaroo kick, and then he did the ultimate warrior rope shake. Plus, they hit double clothesline for the win in 15 minutes. MJF then refused help to the back, and as he was walking back, he crossed paths with Samoa Joe, who was coming down for his match, and Joe shoves him to the side. Now, for those of you who weren't watching NXT back in the day, (laughs) On NXT Brooklyn, uh, MJF was there as a security guard hired, you know, by WWE just for that one night. And as Joe was walking to the ring for his title match, 
he shoves MJF to the side. And it's an iconic kind of moment in MJF's career just because he was nobody then, like really nobody at that point. And now, you know, it's a moment that you can look back on and laugh that, oh my God, that was MJF. So they recreated it here, which popped me big time as someone who saw that live back when I was watching NXT. So MJF, at first his neck's hurt. He's like, I'm not gonna bother with this tonight. Then he says, screw it. He charges to the ring. He attacks Joe only to get locked in a guillotine choke, which obviously hurts the neck. About a dozen security runs down, separates them. MJF continued to sell the neck. And if he didn't realize what was happening here, MJF went after Joe, who, quote, de-escalated the situation with a chokehold. In other words, they took the all-in backstage shit and they put it in the ring. Fun show opener to get the crowd going. It was an immensely mediocre match when these four actually could have had a good one, but the purpose was not really the match. It was to tell the story with Joe. The post-match with Joe was intriguing. It felt like a storyline created on a whim because of Punk's departure. Who really cares? Joe was a true heel challenger for MJF. If he beats him, especially with an injured neck, that's going to be notable. It works in that way. And if they get to have a promo battle, that's going to be incredible. So I like the storytelling element coming out. I did not care at all for what they did with the match. Yeah, this match was twice as long as the all-in match with Aussie Open. <laughs> right. And it and 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 that's with this being a two match longer card than all in. Mm-hmm. Like this did not need to be this long. I'm a fan of Dark Order. I like the John Silver promo where he was referring to Budge and the Nightcrawlers. For those of you who don't watch BTE, it was a very long running bit where Adam Cole would sleep in the same bed with the Dark Order and they called him Budge and it was it was very funny. So I, I like that callback, but yeah, this did not need to be this long whatsoever. Um, and it was a weird feeling to start the show because you're like, these two, Adam Cole and MJF, just had like one of the biggest matches in wrestling history a week ago, and now they're opening the show in a tag team match against Dark Order. Right. This is their only match in the card. It was just like weird. Yeah. And it, so it, it did absolutely not need to go that long. But the Samoa Joe stuff, was um, awesome. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking, man, we can really think about face MJF champ- champion and all the different people he can fight now. Uh, Joe is an awesome person to include. He's not losing to Joe, but I really hope we get them one-on-one in the ring and going back and forth because that is going to sell pay-per-views or whatever you do with it. So uh, very, very excited about that. I laughed. I also caught the NXT bit because I've seen that video many times. Mm-hmm. And then I also thought back, are they just doing the all in brawl stuff right here? <laughs> I wasn't sure if they would. So that popped me uh, really interesting stuff going forward. But the match itself was whatever. It felt to me like that's going to be the Wrestle Dream main event. MJF and Joe. I mean, they only got like four weeks mm-hmm. to get there, maybe three, uh, which is wild. They're doing another pay-per-view in three or four weeks. But yeah, that to me is where it felt like that was going. But as you will hear me say later, All Out was like two different wrestling cards shoved into one. One, a fantastic like upper crust professional wrestling, you know, mega cast of like three or four matches that you were just you couldn't do without. And then but there were 13 matches on the card. So like the other, let's say the bottom six matches, you're just like, why the hell are these even on the card? They were dynamite, you know, collision rampage matches. They weren't pay-per-view matches. And this was one of them. I didn't think this match 
belonged on this card and they could have found another way to do the stuff with Samoa Joe and MJF still at all out without doing the match. Well, no, I would say no to that. You had to have MJF and Cole on this card in some form. I'm not saying not to have them on the card. I'm just saying treat them like WWE did with Cody Rhodes at Payback. You do a segment with them. You do something backstage. They just didn't have to have a match is what I'm saying. Uh, Let's move on to FTR on the Young Bucks against Bullet Club Gold on Collision. Dax Harwood, Jay White. Dax had a slingshot Liger bomb and put Jay in sharpshooter. The faction got involved. White used the distraction to catch Harwood with Blade Runner at ringside and then again inside for the win. Good match. Uh, They went to attack Cash after. The Bucks made the save. There was a good commentary line. This is Collision. What is going on? Obviously, they were allowed to be there because CM Punk wasn't there. But FTR refused to shake their hands. and That harkened back to their all-in match. So we'll go to the match itself. There were some CM Punk chants that were drowned out quickly by booze. The Bucks also got a lot of heat, which is really interesting because people are booing people chanting CM Punk, but they're also booing the Young Bucks. So it's almost like they just hate all sides, basically. Uh, There was an eight-man brawl with an entire extended four-way choreographed sequence ending in sharpshooters. If you know me, you know I hated that. The Bucks had a fun hot tag sequence with assisted sliced bread and more. Rick Knox actually allowed Cash to tag in one of the guns who was not on his team, and then he became legal. Uh, Matt Jackson and Dax combined for Melter Driver. There was a Dax superplex followed by a Cash splash, Matt Elbow, and Nick 450, all in succession for a broken fall. Tagging was not even a concept for most of this match. Dax and Nick combined for Shatter Machine. Then Dax and Matt combined for BTE Trigger. The finish came rather suddenly after a sequence as White caught Cash with Blade Runner for the win. I had no idea White was legal, but I mean, I trust that he was. FTR and the Bucks were kind of disappointed and they argued a little bit after the bell. So this was really chaotic uh, of an eight-man match. The right team did win to continue building Bullet Club Gold. As I said on the Ultimate Preview, there's no reason for any members of the elite to beat anyone from Bullet Club Gold until they do it all together as a faction. I'm a little borderline here. I, I, I For me, it's like 3.75 stars B+, but I usually give an extra quarter because I underrate Young Bucks matches because it's not my style. So four stars A-, minus. as you all know, it's not my particular taste, but the crowd was pretty damn good. It was interesting. Um, I did like that they wanted to boo the Bucks but they had no choice but to cheer them as the match finished because they were really good in the match. So that's my take. Yeah, it was fun. It was a bit messy and the right team won. And when you have eight man AEW tag team matches, that's basically what you're going to get every time. So I don't have much other to say than, um, than that really. That's fine. And and I was, I was surprised the bucks lost it all in. I was surprised kind of surprised they lost here but you know what bullet club gold's doing a great job as a foursome and i like them winning in this spot against two tag teams that are not together so good stuff it's interesting bullet club gold and blackpool combat club are winning and the elite are all losing pretty much which is very curious um let's keep going here with the tnt championship luchasaurus defending against darby allen first on collision after a loss nick wayne said he was frustrated that darby forgave ar fox last week right away. Good. I was very pissed off about that. Uh, Darby came down saying, let me talk to you, man. And the crowd instinctively said, yeah. Uh, Alan recalled (laughs) how he burned a bridge with Wayne's father and didn't talk to the family for three years, only for him to die. So he didn't want to make the same mistake with Fox. That was his explanation. Then he asked Nick to be in his corner at All Out. That led Christian Cage out talking shit. 
He talked about going for Wayne's mom and his dead dad. He got cheap hometown sports heat. He called Luchasaurus the most complete big man in the business, false, and said they would prevail. I'm not sure whether I love Christian like playing into the whole dead father thing and, oh, I want to also bang the mom that's a widow, but he does it over and over again. So it's either like I love it or I find it like really eye rolling and trite. I'm probably right in the middle between the two because it pops me, but then I'm like, it's really unnecessary. But I did like what this accomplished in filling a plot hole and it also kind of made me think maybe Nick Wayne joins Christian just because now he's going to be in the corner of Darby and he's mad at him. Obviously, that did not transpire. This match started with Luchasaurus swinging Allen into the steel steps. Darby bladed two minutes in. Then Luchasaurus put the steps literally on top of Darby and walked up them into the ring with Allen selling his injured lower back. He dominated until Darby put him in a chair and hit a somersault that pretty much missed him outside and then countered into a fantastic crucifix bomb inside. Then Darby legitimately landed on his head and neck on a really poor German suplex. Luchasaurus put Darby in a torture rack, but got distracted by Wayne and Christian arguing outside. Allen took out Cage with a tope suicida, then hit an avalanche code red for a 3.2 false finish. Rick Knox is the worst. Uh, (laughs) Christian drilled Wayne in the back with a chair, and then he threatened to do concerto as Darby went for a coffin drop. So Luchasaurus took advantage of the indecision with a double tombstone pile driver, snake eyes, and a lariat to the back of Darby's head to retain the title in 12 minutes. Luchasaurus held Wayne as Christian set up Darby for concerto, only for like a random assortment of guys from the locker room to run out for the save. It was a surprising outcome Luchasaurus retaining, but a damn good match and story. Darby was conflicted between helping Nick and going for glory. And then you have the locker room rallying around a guy who they probably want to represent them as TNT champion. That's my guess on the story they're doing. Now, we've been discussing this match for like three weeks now, and it made all the sense in the world for Darby to win. However, since it was initially booked, AEW announced that Wrestle Dream Show in Seattle. That is where he is from. It's where Nick Wayne is from. Not to mention, it's where AR Fox is from. And of course, Swerve Strickland as well, but he's not really involved in this. But the booking to me now makes sense for Darby to win in Seattle, which would be even bigger of a deal for him than winning in Chicago. I went 3.75 stars B plus for this David Goliath match. Really nice storyline continuation, especially given what we just mentioned. Yeah, they didn't follow through on the story we thought and the one they'd been telling, but it was because they are continuing to tell a story. And there was another turn in the story. And you don't get that often in AEW. So I was fine with that. I thought this match made Luchasaurus look awesome. And it has been a very long time since we could say that about Luchasaurus. So props to both of them for a good match. uh, And props to Christian for continuing to be an absolute piece of shit. (laughs) He walks into the the post-show scrum and says, hey, how's everyone's father's doing? (laughs) Like, like he's just absolutely leaning into this very, very dark thing. But like, it's kind of working in a very sick way. So props to him for continuing to stay completely relevant and get a lot of heat. So uh, good stuff all around. And this will continue, I think. And it works. It does seem like it will continue. Let's move to powerhouse Hobbs against uh, Miro. Hobbs squashed a jobber in 10 seconds on collision. Then Miro came down looking jacked, baby. He quickly dispatched Hobbs outside into the crowd. It was a decent enough go home moment. But again, 
this did have zero storyline going in. Then again, do we really need a storyline with that much meat? He don't want no water. He don't want no bread. All he wants is meat. Now, Excalibur straight up stole our gimmick, calling this big meaty men slapping meat pretty much right at the bell. Miro hit a somersault off the ring apron. Other than that, it was painfully slow for a while while they just kind of exchanged strikes and fans start chanting meat with every single hit, which was awesome. Miro hit a big uh, superplex, but got countered into a power slam. There were also slap the meat and meat forever chants, I think, and holy meat maybe at one point as well. Miro did a Sheamus tribute with 10 beats. Then he hit the thrust kick and locked in game over. But Hobbs raised up and broke it. Fans chanted, oh, this is where they chanted, holy meat. Uh, Hobbs then caught Miro off the ropes for a spine buster for a 2.9 false finish. Hobbs tried game over, but Miro countered into a spine buster and locked in game over a second time to get the submission win in 16 minutes. Hobbs offered a hand. They dapped up only for Hobbs to attack Miro from behind and choke him out. As he's doing this, CJ Perry, who is Lana from WWE and Miro's wife, debuted with her gimmick being hot and flexible. She hit Hobbs with a chair to no effect. I don't know what she thought she was doing, but, you know, he did let go of the hold. Miro then grabbed the chair, knocked Hobbs out. Then he looked confused when he saw her and just left the ring without her. Now, let me be clear about two things. Number one, this was a damn good match. Number two, the crowd massively elevated it. They made it feel like it was an amazing match. The fans were excellent. The chants were outstanding. It was one of those right place, right time, right people type of situations. The match itself, though, it was a somewhat typical big man match. It didn't really have any special moves or sequences. There were some good parts, don't get me wrong. And it was a way, way above average match. But I wouldn't say it was great or excellent or anything like that. The crowd, though, made it seem that way. So I told you I'm not grading every match tonight, and I'm not going to give this one a standard grade. Instead, Chris, I'm going to give it the grade that matters the most for a match like this. Five slabs of beef. (laughs) Big meaty man slapping meat. (laughs) (laughs) And in terms of the post-match, Lana joining AEW, it's neither here nor there for me. If the storyline is good and it helps Miro get on screen and things that matter, then it'll be great to have her on board. He could actually use storylines that matter. If it doesn't change anything for him, then I don't care whether she's there or not. Yeah, this was a crowd moment. Like this is one of those crowd reactions to a match you'll probably always remember. Definitely. You know, like the, the Sami Zayn, Shinsuke Nakamura fight forever is one. Like the meat forever, like the meat jokes were incredible. And we've been making them on this podcast for a very, very long time. It felt like gimmick uh, infringement. Yeah. I just need to say it felt like gimmick infringement. Well, yes, it did to an extent. And look, part of that is obviously Biggie was a big part of that, too. But Samoa Joe's got some lines in there uh, as Booker well. Booker T, so Vince, yeah. It, yeah, it really, I mean, there were two meaty matches on this card. There so were. it's, it's um, it was good. I don't know if we can, I don't know if the crowd chants were clear enough that we could, that we could clip them to make them a drop as well. But really, really fun. The match was fun. It was a lot more fun because of that. Right. Now, the Lana thing, very weird the way it played out. If Lana was, or I'm sorry, CJ Perry. If CJ Perry coming into AEW was going to be anything, I kind of just want her to be Lana. 
And it works with, it would work with this Miro character. I don't even know who she is though. They didn't say her name. All it said was hot and flexible. It it, it didn't say Lana, it didn't say CJ Perry. I don't think commentary said anything. I don't know if commentary did. I don't know if, I thought commentary may have said CJ Perry. I don't think they did. But, but either way, like immediately, like you're making it clear that her gimmick is whatever hot and flexible is. Like I, like, I just, I would really love, not not with the Russian accent and everything, but, like, just have her be Lana. And it would give Miro direction. They were great together. That entire gimmick was really good. And it would be something for both of them to do and be interesting. Like, I still, Miro still just is just doing weird stuff. Like, so, I, I don't know. I am intrigued by him being confused about her being there. Like, mm-hmm. he would always say, like, my, my, my hot wife, whatever, and promos and stuff. So yeah. I am definitely curious to see where it goes. I, I would imagine they have some plans here. So we'll see. I just thought he assumed she was still with Bobby Lashley and he was shook that she showed up. I mean, that's <laughs> that's what I took from the entire thing. Uh, but nevertheless, let's keep going here. Uh, TBS Championship, Chris Statlander against Ruby Soho. First on collision, Stat, Britt Baker, and Hikaru Shida fought the outcast. Backstage, Soraya was proud of herself for winning the title as she and Ruby Soho refused to acknowledge problems with Tony Storm. Pretty damn good promos, actually, from them. Uh, Stat beat the shit out of Soraya with a spinning Liger bomb. Storm tried to break a fall with a high-risk move, but landed on Soraya. Baker hit a nice swinging neckbreaker on Soho, but got sprayed in the face, with Soho hitting no future for the win. Stat and Soho got into it backstage. Soraya got between them, calling Stat a stupid bitch. I'd have liked to have seen this match get legit time, but it was eight really fast minutes. Shockingly, Britt Baker actually looked damn good in the ring here for the first time in a long time. It was also nice to see her take the fall for a change. And backstage was solid. So moving into the singles match here, uh, Ruby got up early with distractions and work outside. Stat hit no future. Uh, Soho hit a Saito suplex only to eat a spinning Mishinoku driver. Ruby countered Sunday Night Fever. Stat came back with a really cool avalanche swinging power slam. Ruby came back from that with a Poison Rana and a monkey flip style tornado DDT, plus a basement Harakarana for a false finish. Stat hit a blue thunderbomb, but got distracted by Soraya on the top rope. And she ate no future and destination unknown for a 2.9 false finish. She strategized with Soraya, Ruby did, and then she grabbed the spade paint when suddenly Tony Storm emerges from underneath the ring, steals the spray paint from Ruby, Stat then catches Soho with Sunday Night Fever and retains the title in 11 minutes. This was rolling like extremely hot until they made Stat kind of look like shit, only winning her first legitimate title defense that, I mean, when I say legit, I mean against a challenger that might actually beat her um, because of intergroup problems. Now, granted, Stat kicked out of two finishers, so it wasn't all bad, but the fact that it took Storm for Stat to retain, I thought was ridiculous. Still, the match had some great sequences, and it was a really good showcase that, and a good reminder that AEW has talented women's wrestlers in this company. They just don't get opportunities like this with any frequency. It's pretty much Willow or Sky Blue or Anna Jay or this. And and by the way, I'm not denigrating any of them. They are all talented in their own way. But it seems like it's the same people in the same matches every single week, whereas you get something like this and it was fresh and they worked extremely well together. And really what I wanted, I wanted four more minutes and a clean finish rather than what we got. And that's why I'm most frustrated about it because it was a really good showcase for the women. It was the exact opposite of what happened at All In where they did the multi-person match. It was like seven minutes and Soraya won the title and it was completely forgettable. I'm not going to necessarily ever watch this again, but in the moment, I remember being very entertained by it. Um, 
This was the best Ruby Soho has looked to date. And Storm splitting from the outcast in a babyface manner, it's really smart because the gimmick she's doing has been hitting big time. Yeah, it's kind of that weird spot where like you want Statlander to look good and dominant and get a pretty clear outright win as champion. But they're also telling a story with women that it isn't involving a championship. And that's a positive too. So this was fine. I liked what they did. I just would like Statlander to get more. Tony Khan said in the post scrum that Jade Cargill is coming back pretty soon. And Statlander said she wants to prove her win wasn't a fluke. So maybe they do that again. It feels unlikely, but we'll see on that. It's not about the title yet. Don't forget Soraya's champion. Soho's her or was her teammate. She could easily go after, not Soho, Storm. Um, Storm could easily go after that title and win it back. Very possible. Uh, mm-hmm. Eddie Kingston. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Eddie Kingston and Katsuyori Shibata against Claudio Castagnoli and Wheeler Yuta on collision. Claudio, after Dynamite, gave Wheeler five European uppercuts as he kept getting up for more. He said he thought Japan would make Eddie a better man, but instead he came back a, a fanboy and he lost even more of Claudio's respect. Yuta then collapsed after taking those five European uppercuts. Kingston called Yuta a bitch for dealing with all of that. Fact. Uh, and said Claudio was scared to fight him again. Shibata then said through a translator app on his iPhone, you both suck. Both of these hit well. Claudio's was kind of ridiculous. Eddie on point as always. So for this match, Eddie wore an awesome Claudio sucks eggs shirt. Of course, the dusty suck eggs shirt that Terry Funk wore. So it was a callback to that. There was not much to break down. It was rather formulaic for a while. Shibata and Claudio had a great sequence at one point. Kingston took a German suplex to the back of his head, then ate a second from Yuta. This was the third of three head neck shots that were really scary. Uh, he finally got into it with Claudio and took a neuralizer for a false finish. Eddie escaped Ricola bomb with his and hit a back fist plus a northern lights bomb. Shibata then put Yuta in a sleeper over the ropes as Claudio caught Eddie with a European uppercut for the one, two, three with Kingston kicking out at four, which was kind of a deflating, but also somewhat interesting finish. We got plenty of Eddie Claudio story here, and that was really the purpose of this more than anything else. This would have been a very good TV match, but I thought it struggled coming immediately after Danielson Starks, and it just didn't really belong on the show. Correct. That That is the takeaway that, and we felt going in that it didn't belong on the show. Look, they're presumably building toward Claudio, Eddie at some point, but this was almost 16 minutes like you could easily just cut this and the finish did kind of come out of nowhere it was a little bit weird eddie sort of kicked out he kind of just rolled over but then commentary and taz jumps in like oh he kicked out at four huh Mm -hmm. that was weird it's like it's like commentary didn't know what the finish was and so they just like started talking like as soon as the match ended that that's kind of an issue they they often have is they kind of step on each other and when there's a big closing sequence to imagine imagines they don't like deliver the call and then step away they kind of just like start talking just like normal voice and so that was kind of weird and made for another made for another weird finish uh, among several on this show agreed let's move to the ring of honor tv championship samoa joe defending against shane taylor this did follow that mjf situation but obviously this match lacked importance of its own joe hit a tope suicida taylor hit a draping cutter and a splash off the middle rope Joe then won with a coquina clutch in eight minutes. Now, look, what we got here was indeed. Oh, we got two big meaty men bumping me tonight. So let's not get it twisted. Uh, But this had no place on the show. Again, the Joe MJF deal 
and you could put Adam Cole there too. It could have been done backstage or with Joe walking out or in myriad other ways. You know, look, good work from the guys, but this did not belong on the show. It was extra time that didn't need to be on the on the card. Simple as that. At least they only took a little more than six minutes. You know, it's it was basically six minutes shorter than everything else on the show. Yeah. But yeah, this was something you didn't need to have. However, you did set up something with Joe and MJF. This was a short match. Like this, this is like what better than you baby could have been as well. Like well, that's the thing. These two segments combined were 24 minutes of in-ring action plus the non-in-ring action. So this was ended up being like 35 minutes maybe that pretty much didn't need to be there. I mean, they could have done it all. They right. could have done it in one five-minute segment or they could have done it on Dynamite or Collision. They could have done it in a number of different ways is really the point of the entire thing. Uh, let's move. I did like, I did like, I did like the pre-match promo on this explaining Shane Taylor's background and why he was a big deal for someone who didn't follow him. So it did make this feel better. So pro- there were a few few matches that had really good pre-match vignette packages. This was another one. So props to the AEW video team for that. We'll move to the three zero-hour matches first. The Acclaimed against, to be determined. Uh, on Rampage, there's a trio's title match, Acclaimed versus Daniel Garcia and 2.0. I'm not going to get into everything that happened, but Daniel Garcia almost said he was going to be a professional wrestler. Max Caster cut a great rap. The acclaimed retained the titles. And then on collision, Dennis Rodman opened hour two. Yes, I did just say those five words. It is 2023. And he stood with his back to the hard cam. A still unnamed Jeff Jarrett faction entered. Jarrett explained how they're all similar to Rodman. He made NWO references. He asked them to join their family. Rodman threw Sanjay Dutt across the ring. Acclaimed saved Rob, uh, Rodman. And Billy Gunn made the challenge for all out another pay-per-view title match for Jarrett's crew and a completely forced storyline 24 hours out again no reason for this to have been on the show uh, Billy called down Aubrey Edwards to be his referee because she hates Karen Jarrett Karen got caught trying to use a, a guitar gun took out Satin Singh's knee and Aubrey screamed at Karen outside for like five minutes so Rodman could get in the ring hit sing with a guitar Aubrey saw all the debris but did nothing Rodman stayed in the ring he didn't move and they all hit their finishing sequence to retain the titles. This is about to be a trend, but this was nothing. Uh, I didn't understand it was a kickoff show. It just it didn't need to be there. Fans barely popped like they normally do for the acclaimed. And that was kind of sad because they're super over. It was a very uh, interesting rap from uh, Max Caster, though. We got a Kim Jong-un reference. We, we got an oddities reference. Um, my thought during all of this was, Man, you get Dennis Rodman and you're just putting him on the pre-show like dang, like, you know, that th- he is like six one of those like mainstream crossover things you launch. However, it does fit again with kind of what we got uh, with all in, which is put something notable on the pre-show in, in a way you hope fans will buy the show. So, like, I kind of get it from that. And I know this only got thrown together at the last minute, but still surprised it was on the pre-show. And as for the Jarrett, Jeff Jarrett group, I'm surprised. I would just call them the Jarrett family. Like I'm anything kind of surprised we haven't call them anything. Yeah. It's just the Jarrett Jarrett's the Jarrett family. Like this is Jeff Jarrett and Karen Jarrett's kid, like group, like just go with that. I'm kind of surprised. And by the way, if they're going to be that corny, carry the damn leather face title. I mean, they're not even carrying the title. Like bring that with you out. <laughs> like if yes. you're going to do what you're Should doing, then that. go all the way with it. Like it's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, let's keep going. Hikaru Shida, Willow Nightingale, and Sky Blue fought Athena, Mercedes Martinez, and Diamante. 
literally zero build for these trios, though Willow and Sky have been teaming together, and obviously Mercedes and Diamante are working together. Uh, Blue took a spider German suplex and nearly broke her neck. Uh, Athena then hit Willow with O-Face. There was a nice standoff between Sheeta and Athena, but that singles match would have been far better than just doing this. This whole thing finished with Sky botching Code Blue for the win in 830. Uh, it actually started well, fell off massively down the stretch. That's all I got. Yeah, I actually missed this one uh, in the pre-show. I was doing some football things and stuff going on, so no real thoughts otherwise. Fair enough. You did not miss anything. And let's lastly get to the Over the Budget Charity Battle Royal. I believe Over the Budget was a moniker they used for the all-in Battle Royal, or maybe it was under the budget. I don't remember, but whatever. I I just didn't know why this was here. Um, Apparently, there was $50,000 on the line and a charitable donation for whoever won. It was kind of confusing. Hangman Page, Brian Cage... And one of the Tongan guys were the final three. Page took him out with the buckshot lariat, then hit Deadeye on Cage on the ring apron to get the win. And he gave the money to a teacher charity, which makes sense because he used to be a teacher. But awarding charity money in a kayfabe match, it's a totally odd gimmick. And yeah, I mean, I'm glad Hangman Page was on the show, but it was a downer for me. I disagree about the gimmick. I, I think putting money on the line when there's nothing else going on in this battle royale, I actually really like that idea. Like I'm the one who says we should bring back kayfabe money all the time. So uh, this one's actual money and it goes to a charity. So like I was cool with that. Um, it would have been funny like going in if you had someone like Brian Cage like or some of the heels say what they were going to send the money to like some group of bad people or keep it for themselves or something. Like so that. they Just did. Like they did. The, his group um, said with Prince Nana. They're like, yeah, we have a charity we're going to send it to. And he's basically said it was them was was the idea. Oh, yeah. OK. I miss that. I love yeah. that. Like, I like that. So, no, that was cool. Um, it is kind of weird to have Hangman like winning a battle royal on a pre-show <laughs> just with where he's at. Um, so I don't know. Figure it out. But that's fine. All right, Chris, so with AEW all-out instant analysis in the books, let's move to our final grades for the show. Before, of course, we get to those, we're going to discuss our pre-show expectation grades. Now, you and R were completely aligned on the Ultimate Preview. We thought, based on the card and the lacking build, and obviously we did not know Brian Danielson would be on it at the time. We also didn't know some of the specific matches that would be on it, because many of them were announced after Dynamite was over. But both of us gave it a B-. minus which was one of our lower, if not our lowest pre-show expectation grade ever. And our audience, the Getting Overheads, our followers on Twitter, at Getting Overcast, they agreed. Uh, The vote was 7% A, 42% B, 46% C, and 5% D to F. That averaged out to an 80 out of 100, the lowest B minus possible. I think that made this the lowest expectation that we've had for pretty much any event going in. Uh, Do you agree with that? Yeah, it might be. I don't remember what some of the early COVID era stuff was when we started the podcast, but at least in many years, that's the lowest we've had going in. Yeah, probably the lowest since at least 2020, I would say is fair. So with that, now you all know what the expectation grades were. Chris, when we give our final grades, you always get the opportunity to go first. So we'll get Vintage's final grade, then we'll go to the getting overheads and the Silver King will wrap it up. So Chris, what is your final grade for AEW All Out? Yeah, the tradition here is I give my grade and then you say you agreed with everything I said and give the same. Well, I don't think that's going to be the case tonight. I don't. Maybe it will be. Uh, We didn't listen. We did not agree for payback. We did not agree for payback. So that was good. We did not. B plus. Very fun card. 
lots of really good matches, but very little story and very little of consequence. It was in that sense, very much like payback Mm -hmm. because these are on back to back nights. Very easy to compare them. This probably had a few more better matches, but also had more waste of time matches. Mm -hmm. I think that cancels it out. We, we didn't, we didn't have the top guy on the card in either company. I'm sorry, like in a singles championship match in either companies, very, very much a B pay-per-view for both shows, but it was, it was a very solid and fun one with a lot of good stuff just without much consequence. So therefore just like payback, I'm going with a B plus. All right. Now we'll get to our grade from the getting overheads. And I got to be honest, the voting here, it's kind of surprising to me. So 34% came in with an A, 44% with a B, 14% with a C, and 7% Dear F. And that is higher than normal for a Dear F. It's usually two, three, four percent troll votes, whatever. I don't know how you could, I feel those are completely illegitimate, but even if you cancel those out, 14% for a C here just does not sound right to me. But look, we can only go with what the votes are. It's on our votes. It's listener votes. That averages out to an 85 out of 100. So a flat B lower than you. I, for the second straight night, I think am higher than you. Let me ask you a quick question. What would be your numerical grade out of 100? I what I said, I said a B plus, so mm-hmm. I'd probably say an eighty-eight, right, right in the middle of a solid B plus. Gotcha. I'm straddling the A minus B plus line. I think I was A minus last night, and you were also B plus for payback. If that, if memory serves, Correct. I'm I'm there again. So it's the second night in a row where a pay per view completely over delivered its booking and its card going in. My biggest problem with All Out. Where there were four or five extra matches that were completely unnecessary, making it so it was a 13 match card for no reason whatsoever. Danielson stepping in for CM Punk took this from a show that would have been better than expected to one that was way better than expected. It undoubtedly had better wrestling than all in head to head, but the show wasn't as special because of Wembley Stadium and the atmosphere and all that type of stuff. It also kind of makes me want to change or adjust my grade for All In because now I realize the matches, I really didn't like them that much on All In, at least compared to All Out. But I digress. I really liked how AEW built some of its younger, less established talent on the show, both in victory and defeat. But the first half of this, it felt like TV shows on uh, TV matches, I'm sorry, on pay-per-view. The second half, if you siloed that off as like a five or six match card, it would have stood on its own as phenomenal. Maybe A bordering on A plus if you cut the card in half and you only dealt with the second half. There was also a lot of blood on this show. It was appropriate in the strap match and to tell the Mox Orange story, but it felt like overkill for there to be crimson masks in five different matches, especially with it happening so early. One was 30 seconds before the bell, one was after two minutes, one was after four minutes. It was constant. Blood should be a match device, not a starting off point. The best compliment I can give for All Out is that for a show, Chris, that I said I would not have bought if we did not have this podcast, 
I am extremely glad that I bought it. I don't know whether everything went as planned or Tony Khan changed plans and upped the match bookings due to CM Punk. Obviously, if Danielson wasn't there, we're getting one less stellar match, but we got what we got and it was pretty damn great. I'm at a 89 out of 100, the top B plus, and I'm really damn close to A minus. I think this was pretty much, like you just said, on par with Payback. The Payback was a much smaller card, and if you averaged out the matches, I'd say the average is probably a little bit higher. All Out had some matches that were just as good, and to people with different tastes might say were better than the top two matches on Payback but it had a lot of matches that were worse than things that were on Payback. So I'm right there. I think for Payback, I was at a 90. Here I'm at an 89. I mean, it's six of one, half a dozen or the other. I think, again, Chris, the the key to wrap this up is this massively exceeded expectations. And Tony Khan, from a booking standpoint, did a fantastic job and the wrestlers did a fantastic job. It felt to me like they were saying, we don't need CM Punk. Look what we have here otherwise. Real quick, I gave all in an A. I don't remember. What did you give all in? A. Yeah. And it the wrestling really, was not it's as really good. Fascinating. On all in. It's really fascinating to compare these two. All in was about a four hour show in a stadium. This was a five hour show, including kickoff, 13 matches including uh, this was 10 on the main card. The other one had nine. And my biggest praise for all in was that everything worked. Everything fit exactly what it was supposed to be. And the pacing of the show was great because of that. All out again felt like, God, we have so many matches to get through here. And it's just a slog for a bit. Even some of these matches that were great you're just exhausted by the end of them. And it kind of just goes back to my biggest issue with AEW in general and something I think they really, really need to do more of. And they kind of did in All In, which is take your handful of top stars, whoever you want them to be, and build the pay-per-views and the shows around them. You don't need to have everybody on every show. Because when you do, it's so much harder for them to stand out. It's a miracle that MJF has been able to turn himself into what he is, given everything that he just kind of has to compete with on every general card. We mentioned it before, Ricky Starks. He should be one of your pillars, as they like to say. Last time he was in this spot, they didn't know what to do with him. You know, like, have plans for your top five to ten guys. Have them on every show. Have them at least one or one or one of the show or the other, have them cutting promos almost every week in front of the crowd, not just backstage and really like, just like lean into a handful of guys that you can go with as opposed to having everybody on every card. Because I, I think that's what's holding AEW back a bit. Is it, it's just, it's too much. And if you ever want to just grow from what your audience is, it's gotta be easier to follow. And when you have a card like this, that's so big with so little story to so many of them. It's just, it's just limiting. And I thought all in was done and presented in a way that felt more welcoming because it wasn't overwhelming. All in was more complete 
AEW All Out felt like it was trying to make up for the fact that there was a pay-per-view the week before. So they threw as much as possible on it. The problem being, it didn't need all that extra stuff as proven by like the final five or six matches on the card. Again, if you cut that off and you just did those matches, we're talking about possibly the pay-per-view of the year. Very possible. Um, But again, that was not what happened here. So that wraps up, Chris, our AEW all-out instant analysis, but we are nowhere near done. We're just half done with this episode of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast because it is now time for us to discuss CM Punk being fired by AEW. Let's get right into it because there's a ton to talk about here. So CM Punk had his contract terminated by AEW with cause on Saturday, right in the middle of mine and Chris's workday. AEW said this was Tony Khan's decision after a unanimous agreement between a discipline committee and outside legal counsel. And then in a statement, Khan said he was doing it in the best interest of everyone in AEW. Now, there are many levels to this that we are going to get into as this conversation progresses. Off the top, though, Tony made the right decision here, even if it was an entire year too late. The timing made it particularly tough for him coming off all in with all out, of course, this week in Chicago. And the terminology fired with cause, that's important because the idea of a firing like that is to avoid paying out a contract. Not just a contract, but contracts, plural. Apparently, Punk had two of them. Now, we don't know the language of the contracts, so we don't know how they were structured from a guarantee perspective. But beyond those, the termination was done in this way to avoid at least the non-guaranteed money on the deal. Also curious is going to be finding out whether there's any clauses similar to WWE contracts where Punk is unable to work for a competitor over a period of time while he continues to get paid. That remains to be seen. Another note on Fired With Cause is that Khan let Punk wrestle at All In despite what happened backstage, which we now know he was present for. Punk even waved goodbye and saluted the crowd after the fact. That may well come up in the future. The reminder here, Chris, is nothing ever should have gotten to this point because the situation should have been handled by Tony after Brawl Out. Punk received no discipline of significance after embarrassing his boss to his face, blowing up the locker room, and getting into a physical altercation. And everything that transpired in 2022 was simply a precursor to the controversy that enveloped AEW over these last couple of weeks. It's like a significant other blatantly cheating on you, but you become convinced they're not going to do it again, except a year later, they cheat again, and then you break up with them. You wasted a year of your life being unhappy, wondering whether you would get hurt, only to actually get hurt just as you expected, and then be faced with the exact same decision that you were faced with 12 months ago. Tell me when I'm telling lies. Again, Khan made the right call here. He deserves a level of credit for finally pulling the trigger. But number one, he let his fandom of Punk cloud his judgment for way too long. And number two, he overestimated Punk's importance to AEW, even if Warner liked him and even if he sold a lot of merchandise. As a boss, one is frequently faced with having to make difficult decisions personally and professionally. Khan failed in that charge multiple times, though hopefully now AEW can finally move on from this bullshit. Like I said, there's a ton more to talk about, but I want to get you in for your thoughts on the firing. When he came back 
and and you said this is ridiculous shouldn't happen i said i love the chaos he's gonna create chaos it's not gonna go well and i'm kind of excited to see it blow up i didn't expect it to blow up like that you know, I, did. I thought maybe he says, I, I I thought we might get just, I thought we might get more fireworks like in front of the camera before we got something like that. Instead, this entire thing played out over dirt sheets. And that's just really lame and boring because it's hard to know what to believe. And it's just petty. So um, my overall reaction to punk getting fired is um, generally sadness. Like we waited so long for CM Punk to come back to wrestling. And he did. And he seemed to be in such a good spot with a bunch of people he could do things with, like the MJF feud, which was incredible. But he couldn't get past the issues he's always had personally. His inability to let go any kind of slight ever was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And it's ultimately his own personality that cost him here. I just kept thinking, think about all the CM Punk versus X matches that we should have gotten and we didn't get. The fact that he didn't come back and they immediately go into a CM Punk elite feud. Just from the beginning, that told me this ain't going to work this time around. Whether it was Punk's fault, whether it was the elite's fault, taking meetings, I don't care. The fact that they as a collective couldn't come together to decide, hey, we might have an incredibly hot money making out the wazoo feud here that could go down as one of the hottest things in AEW history. And they couldn't come together for business, told me that the business part of this was effed and it was never going to play out that way. And so that was incredibly disappointing and just sad, really kind of about the whole thing. And and lastly, we we going back to the preview episode here. One of the I still think it's one of the craziest things we've heard on this podcast when you said Tony Khan should basically lift the suspension to let CM Punk in Chicago <laughs> and then let him go I didn't back s- on suspension. Excuse me, don't don't twist it. I didn't say he should. I said I would understand if he did. That's very those are two very different things. I would I, I thought he should again. I don't need to repeat this. I'm going to repeat it later. We have a lot more to talk about here. I'm the guy who said he should have fired him a year ago. So no, I would not have put him on these shows. However, there is that element of Tony that is a CM Punk fanboy who's a Chicago guy, and he had two shows in Chicago and a planned major match with him. And if you want to make sure your fans don't revolt and all those types of things, it was a level of consideration where if Tony had done it, I would have understood even if I would have disagreed. Those are very different than saying he should have done something. Okay. It was a very bizarre hypothetical. To talk about <laughs> Fair but, enough. But, Fair but, enough. But, 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 so it, it, yeah. So all right, get, let's get into the other stuff. Okay, fine. So look, there's a lot more to the punk story. There always seems to be more to the punk story. Now, before I get into the specifics of what we know, let me remind everyone there's probably a ton of stuff that has happened involving Punk that we do not know about, whether from All In, backstage at Collision, during the prior run before Brawl Out. All we know is what has been leaked and confirmed. And one story leaked Sunday during All Out about Punk confronting William Regal. I've yet to even be able to explore the details there. We'll address that another time. Anyway, back to All In. 
Apparently, due to the location where the incidents happened, cameras owned by Wembley Stadium caught a ton of what went down, and the footage was damning, apparently. One must assume that footage showed Punk starting the physical part of this incident with Jack Perry, because arguing and yelling, that's one thing. Getting physical is wholly unacceptable, and the physicality is where this story took another turn since last time we discussed it. According to Wrestling Observer, Khan yelled for Punk to let Perry go while he was in the chokehold. Once Punk relented, he allegedly charged in Khan's direction, and in doing so, knocked monitors off a table onto or near Tony while screaming, I quit. Him possibly quitting, we mentioned Thursday. But let's break this down in simpler workplace terms. Here we have an actual employee, possibly executive level of some kind, not just a contracted talent, previously terrorizing his coworkers with his treatment of them. Here, physically assaulting a coworker and then going after his boss in a threatening manner, at least verbally, but seemingly, at least with his body language, a bit physically as well. And this leads us into Khan's further explanation of Punk's firing, which he gave Saturday night. That's an entire conversation topic onto itself. Chris, do you want to get in here or do you want me to break down what happened Saturday as well? No, yeah, let's just get into Saturday. Okay, so before Collision, Khan addressed the AEW audience in person. He told them it was the first time that he was fearing for my safety at a show and no one should feel in danger backstage. Now, I saw a clip of this. Tony literally sat in a chair on stage before the show and got vociferously booed. Ridiculous by the fans to boo this guy. Regardless of whether you like what he said, and we'll talk about that, he went out there to face the fans like a man and put the heat on himself instead of the wrestlers. That's a class move, and I appreciate that. Tony then repeated a very similar statement in one of those wide-eyed taped promos that aired at the start of Collision, and he read off a script. But he went further, saying he not only feared for his safety, but thought his, quote, life was in danger. And this was such a sad statement for Tony to make, but let me explain why. I'm not going to criticize him for fearing for his safety. I was not there. Punk is a trained fighter, even if he's a shitty one. And Khan is a relatively small dude. He's also a billionaire son. I doubt he's been involved in any physical confrontation in his life. Not that people should be involved in such things. Fighting is not a mark of honor and expressing yourself physically like that is not okay. I'm just saying I don't criticize Tony for feeling threatened, but fearing for his life? I mean, come on, that's, that's a bit much. However, the reason this statement is sad is because it is the height of absurdity that Khan only took action against Punk once he felt threatened, as opposed to when others in his organization not only felt threatened, but were threatened, either verbally or physically. Tony enabled this behavior by not disciplining Punk, and he had multiple opportunities to do so. But now that it's affected him, it's a problem. Very much a leopard ate my face type of situation. Beyond that, Tony seemed so sad in reality here. Like he was almost pouting that he had to give up his favorite toy in punk because it won't power on anymore. He is a self-admitted CM Punk fanboy. Let's not get it twisted. Now look, 
Maybe that's me being a little bit of an ass. Let me turn it around and provide another perspective. Maybe Tony wanted to come across emotionally vulnerable here for two reasons. One, in case Punk tries to file like a breach of contract lawsuit, or two, to engender sympathy from AEW fans who may have been inclined to side with Punk over him. That is certainly possible. But no matter how you slice it, the promo at the beginning of Collision was sad, but I simultaneously appreciated him being a man and going out in front of the fans before that even aired. Yeah, I I think part of it was trying to emphasize like how far over the line this one was compared to the last one was, you know, like it, it, this wasn't just CM Punk got mad, got in a fight with somebody for a second time. And, and that's what it was. He, mm-hmm. He's based on, like you said, like the videos and, and some of the other eyewitness accounts that are out there. This did seem pretty intense. And so maybe Tony's being a bit hyperbolic, but I understand trying to make that point. And saying it in front of the crowd was the right thing to do. Just like you said, just as the leader, as a man, as the face of the company to explain to the fans there in Chicago, Hey, you know, I know you probably bought these tickets to CCM punk. He's not here. This is why. And you can boo me for that. I also think it was good to do that then to get it out of the way. You know, Mm -hmm. it probably turned out to be a benefit that they had collision on Saturday because by the time all out came around, like we were a show past that, right? You know, it wasn't as fresh. So I think that helped as well for everybody to get over it. But AEW putting out that that video statement where Tony Khan says, you know, fear for, for my safety, fear for my life. That was wild. That's kind of one of the crazier things we've seen in wrestling. And we've seen a lot of crazy things, but but to to in kayfabe, so to speak, or at least on screen, say something like that is uh, quite remarkable. And I, again, I think illustrates the seriousness of the situation and how he's trying to take it seriously, unlike last year and basically everything else that had happened with CM Punk. I can't, you can't blame CM Punk for feeling like he is untouchable or runs the place, given the amount of power that Tony Khan mm-hmm. gave him. Like, exactly. When, when he has the right to determine who shows up at a building, including your head of talent relations, who, what other spots people do in other matches that don't involve him. Like, yeah, he probably got a big head because of that. And that falls on Tony Khan for letting him do that. It's, it was a matter of time for something like this was going to blow up. Yeah, no doubt about it. And look, we've spent a lot of time in previous podcasts and there's, I looked back because I was going to cut some audio and I'll get to that a little bit later. But, you know, we've done, I don't remember, 40 minute rant to 30 minute rant to 20 minute rant. But I do want to put a bow on the CM Punk situation because he's got fired, right? And because of the enabling of Tony Khan and the, the fault of other people as well. So let's get into that now. I should mention before I do that, that in retaliation for the firing news getting out there, Punk had his personal media guy report that there was a scheduled meeting with the Elite and Tony in Atlanta last week that the Elite canceled at the last minute. Other outlets have completely denied that report, saying maybe they tried to do a meeting, but the Elite were never involved and never wanted to go. And credit to the Elite uh, for just staying away from this whole situation. They basically said there's no 
way that us doing anything with this guy will result in us winning something or something positive happening. So we're just not going to touch it. So I thought that was interesting. But I want to go back as we wrap this up with Punk and his tenure in AEW to what John Moxley said on air about him. You have no idea how genuinely sorry I am that CM Punk just didn't turn out to be what you wanted him to be. He didn't turn out to be what any of us wanted him to be when we welcomed him back into this business, gave him a second chance in the greatest sport in the world. It just didn't work out. I have zero sympathy for CM Punk. And that is because CM Punk, fragile ego, fragile body, weak mind, weak spirit. That is prophetic by Mox. Fragile ego, fragile body, weak mind, weak spirit. He nailed it. This is a true case of self-sabotage with seemingly every situation going sideways for CM Punk. And again, he is not the lone party at fault, but we do have to start with Punk himself. And we also need to remember, he kind of self-sabotaged himself in WWE too. But in AEW, he won the AEW title before being forced to vacate due to injury. Fragile body. Please trust, I'm not criticizing him for getting injured, but that's how this all started. Punk was having a blast in AEW. He had maybe the greatest return of all time to professional wrestling and had a pretty decent run until the combination of Hangman Page's promo and that foot injury seemed to completely sour him on everything. It never got better from there. He's forced, I should say not forced, to vacate the title because at that time, AEW was in its interim title phase. He then loses it to Mox in the absurd Rocky Three story. Then he wins it back the next night at All Out. Rather than bathe in the glory, we get Brawl Out starting with immediately ripping the EVPs and embarrassing Toadine Khan in the scrum. That leads to a backstage fight resulting in handfuls of suspensions and a firing. Oh, and he got injured also. Fragile ego, weak mind, fragile body. Punk then returns with his only punishment being his injury absence. Not only that, he's rewarded with his own show and some level of personnel and booking power. And let's not forget, before Collision was even announced, Punk missed the big announcement. They pulled him from it because he was holding out over Ace Steel's employment status. Anyway, he comes back. He's allowed to continue carrying the title that was vacated for no reason. First, he creates significant animosity with multiple peers backstage, including somehow, as you mentioned, being allowed to keep the head of talent relations from being backstage at Collision. When that leaks, he smears AEW and some wrestlers in the media, including Jungle Boy, Fragile Ego, Weak Mind. Then, just two months after returning, despite all of these gifts from Tony Khan, he gets into an unnecessary physical altercation with a guy 18 years his junior over a comment on AEW's biggest show. Punk ended his career because Jungle Boy, of all people, said, cry me a river. Again, Jack Perry should not have done it, and we will go back to that in a moment. But still, fragile ego, weak mind. Let's be honest, Jungle Boy doesn't rub anybody the wrong way. If you got a problem with Jungle Boy, chances are 
You're the problem. I don't know if you heard that. He said, if you have a problem with Jungle Boy, <laughs> chances are you're the problem. Talk about prophetic. That's a real clip. Tell me when I'm telling lies. Clearly, Chris, this is all a trend. And it shows a tremendous amount of narcissism and perhaps insecurity, but also a lacking alignment between what he was doing and what he wanted to be doing. Punk clearly wanted to be in control. He wanted to be treated by Tony Khan like Hulk Hogan and Kevin Nash were by Eric Bischoff. And Tony clearly favored him in that way. I mean, let's be honest, Punk had Khan by the balls for the most part. He got his own show and some power. He got to carry the title. Yet somehow, it wasn't enough. You really have to be an unstable narcissist to have not liked the situation that Tony created for him. It appears as if incidents occurred where he did not feel like he had ultimate freedom or ultimate authority. And I guess for a guy like Punk Chris, that led to what we saw here. The second part of his run, the, the second comeback, is feels so much different than the first. Because the first one, it was about, I'm here to help the young talent, mm -hmm. Darby Yell and MJF. I'm here to do this kind of stuff. And then the hangman thing happens, like you said, the mox thing in the foot, and, he, and, and then he blows up. And he says some stuff at, at the All Out last year press conference, such as like, basically like, I didn't say anything when I was getting smeared in the media. You know, I worked with children, all these things. The second time around, he's using the media like crazy, getting, trying to get all sorts of stuff out there all the time, even possibly the day after he was fired. It was just a very bitter and cynical approach the second time around. And it was never going to work. Whether or not the elite did or didn't pass on a meeting with them they clearly have been proven 100 correct mm -hmm. not to if that was the case right. like how how could you possibly want to try to do that if this is if this stuff with jack perry is happening and the dude has this much power on that one show that was never gonna work of all the decisions made by tony khan cm punk getting his own show not <laughs> only getting his own show but getting like the creative control some type of power determining yeah. who can and who can be in the building is insane even if warner wanted a second show and wanted a second show to be built around punk how the hell do you give him that much power after what he's already done that was nuts this was never gonna work it was always gonna end like this if that's what the rules were yeah now look that's Punk's part in this. And you kind of alluded to what I'm getting at next, which is I've said this numerous times for people who claim I only criticize Punk, which is incorrect. Let me again clarify. He is not the only party that deserves blame from the hangman page promo to the way Khan let that fester without ever addressing it and nipping it in the bud to Tony sitting idly by while Punk eviscerated his company at all out a year ago to Tony not only letting him completely off the hook after Brawl Out, but actually rewarding him and rehiring his friend Ace Steel with back pay to Jack Perry, completely and unnecessarily instigating Punk during AEW's biggest show. These people all undoubtedly share some level of fault. There's no question about that. And yes, Punk should have been above responding to Jack, but as Mock said, fragile ego. 
Still, despite Hangman and Tony and Jack all being a part of this, and again, this is just what we know publicly, despite all of that, Chris, it's crystal clear that Punk deserves the lion's share of the blame for everything. Yet despite that, it is Tony Khan who is primarily responsible for what has transpired since Brawl Out by not seeing the problem as clearly, I guess I can say as I did and as many other people did, seeing the problem for what it was and addressing it accordingly the first time. I can't wait for the dark side of the ring on this whole thing in like 20 years. It's it's going to be incredible. Like, it, it, like I keep thinking about the the Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff, uh, Vince Russo, Bash at the Beach one they did, and how similar that felt. Creative control involved, shoot promos, kind of like it just it gets out of hand very quickly if the leader doesn't take charge. Mm-hmm. And there were so many chances for Tony Khan to fix this, and he didn't. And that's why he has a lot of the blame in this as well. I go back to what I said before. The fact that the elite and punk couldn't come together upon his return to say, hey, let's do like one of the biggest feuds in modern wrestling history. Mm-hmm. It was doomed. And, and, and whoever's fault that was, I don't know. But again, the fact the way it ended like it did proves that the elite were probably right to not trust him and not want to work with him. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, it's not a, it's not even really an elite versus punk thing. It's just the way the situation was handled, the lack of leadership and accountability and responsibility. It was so poor that it got to a point mm-hmm. where they said, we can't even do this. And it doesn't make sense for us to do this. Because we helped start this company with this guy. We are executive vice presidents. We cherish our position here and we like what we've built. It literally is named after us. So if it's just one guy, then we'll avoid that one guy. Why should we put ourselves in a situation where we might react in a certain way? He instigates us and we go after him. They they didn't put themselves in that position. And again, because it festered and it built, there was never an opportunity for that to even happen really. Now, you know, there are some other extraneous topics we can talk about. Will WWE bring CM Punk in? We'll answer that question on our Tuesday WWE podcast, (laughs) because that folks is what is known in this industry as a tease. So tune in Tuesday. We'll talk about CM Punk and maybe possibly WWE, but we've said our pieces on this and I've said my pieces on numerous episodes of this podcast. And I love the feedback that you guys have provided uh, for many of those. So Let me wrap up on this, Chris, if you just will indulge me for a second here. We've been talking about CM Punk since Brawl Out exactly one year ago. And I appreciate those of you whose first thoughts Saturday evening when you saw the press release or you saw our tweet were to message us, in this case, message me, and say versions of this. These are all quotes. Silver King, you were right. Let it rip, SK. I cannot wait to hear you Sunday. My God, if SK didn't completely call this from the day Khan announced Punk's return or pull out the receipts, SK. And look, I have receipts. The length of shit you get from the CVS checkout, okay? But I'm not gonna play all of them, including the ones that foresaw this exact situation play out once Punk made his return at the debut of Collision two months ago. Instead, I wish this was a YouTube show. I could put a cigar in my mouth and kick my feet up. Not because I'm happy. I'm not happy CM Punk got fired. I'm not happy that AEW was chaotic, but I'm content. 
I'm content that this played out the way I thought it would and that people see the situation now for what it always was. So what I want to do is play 50 seconds of what was an in-depth conversation that Chris and I had after Brawl Out. But if I was in Khan's position, I would have stopped Punk after he got 10% of the way into that Colt rant well before it got out of hand. And if he just kept going, not only would I have fined and suspended his ass, I'd seriously consider firing him. And then after learning about the backstage brawl, I absolutely would fire him if all the information comes in after an investigation and proves that it's his fault. Eddie Kingston was just suspended two weeks for pushing, not punching, pushing a guy in the face. Punk should not be working there if reports of the fight are accurate. And even if those reports are not accurate, there's a case to be made that he sealed his fate anyway in that press conference alone. And Khan just let Punk make a mockery of all of them, including himself as the owner. Punk was appalling. Khan was pathetic. The whole thing was embarrassing. Now, obviously, we've upgraded our technology and we sound much better than we did then. So please excuse that. And look, sure, I played it for a little bit of a victory lap here, but not because I like being right, which I do. Who doesn't like being right? More to point out how obvious all of this was from the start. And I also played it for one more reason. The vast majority of you who have been listening to this podcast have been extremely supportive of the punk conversations we've had here over the last few weeks. And I appreciate that feedback. I've also had a couple sparse DMs saying they disagreed with parts of my rants. And guess what? I appreciate that feedback as well. Agree or disagree. I love when you guys communicate because you know your voice will be heard here. What I do not appreciate is one or possibly two of you who claim to be loyal listeners, I've seen the names, I know who you are, being vindictive against us because you are CM Punk fanboys and disagreed with my takes. I saw two people turn five-star reviews into one-star reviews, which adversely affect us as a show. I mean, that's taking action to try to hurt us because you disagree with a wrestling opinion. Worst of all, though, the comments were not even legitimate. One of them called me a mouthpiece for the elite. And I think Chris can attest to the fact, I am not a mouthpiece for the elite. I criticize the elite all the freaking time. That's the height of absurdity. Anyone who listens to the show would never suggest that. And that person also said that in all these conversations we've had about CM Punk, we don't provide insight into the situation. That's all we've been providing for weeks now, including tonight. Another person or the same person, whatever, said there's no depth or reasoning to the analysis. You're right, dude. I've spent hours diving into all the specifics of these conversations and controversies without providing any depth or perspective. Good call. I usually don't do this, okay? But to quote Chris Jericho, those two people, you're a couple stupid idiots. Maybe consider, I don't know, going to find another show or something like that. I hate this. So that's- I hate this crap. Stop. Stop with the crap. To the other 99.99% of you, I love you. Thank you for being the best set of listeners we could hope to have on this journey with us. And Chris, that's it for me. What else do you got to say? I, I think that right there, though, kind of encapsulates the whole issue around all of this, which is fans having parasocial relationships with celebrities and people they've never met mm-hmm. in, 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 in general stan culture. We like 
CM Punk doesn't need you to defend him. The elite don't need anybody to defend them. They don't care. But the way a lot of these stories come out in the dirt sheets, which are often one side of this, one side of mm-hmm. that, it honestly took brawl out and the fallout for a lot of dirt sheets to start reporting things as CM Punk's side of the situation says blank happened. Correct. And that was a much needed raising of the standards, so to speak, in terms of how the reporting goes. You and I are in the sports journalism business. The way a lot of this stuff is reported would not fly no at no our way. places of work yeah and so when the entire environment around everything is well that's just one per- that's punk side of this that's the elite side of that and that becomes the discourse between everything then you can't believe anything and i don't blame that and so it's such an issue with wrestling journalism that these are the leading voices on news and they a lot of them do a lot of really good reporting on a lot of different types of things but when it's when it's something like this standards got to be higher context has to be more clear you have to be more transparent Mm -hmm. with your readers and i do think that's gotten better and i say all that to say like you and i obviously are not coming into this with any uh thoughts of being any mouthpieces for any side of right. whatsoever. You, you, you are very much not a fan of the elite. You're most offended <laughs> at the CM Punk thing as a, as a manager, right. as a boss in your own position. Exactly. You know, like that's just complete insubordination from an employee. And, and, and I'm, I'm someone who wanted CM Punk to come back. Like I said, I, even after the brawl out, I was like, I want him to come back. And I also, like watching BTE. Like I just, I like all these people. So like, it's not like I've never met any of them. I don't think you have either. Like we're not mouthpieces for anybody. We're, we're trying to come at this from, from an all encompassing angle because so much of the discourse is not that. So for, again, for the 99.9% of you who listen for that and understand that, I, I hope this was a all encompassing look at the situation, why it was completely untenable for a very long time, why what we said a year ago this weekend was bound to end the way it did. And I just come back to my general feeling about all of this is sadness. It didn't have to be like this. It didn't have to end like this. It happened because of egos, because of lack of leadership, Mm -hmm. and because everybody was a bunch of babies about everything. And instead of running one of the hottest modern feuds you could have in pro wrestling and elevating this company to a whole nother level. Nobody could get over their hurt feelings and it resulted in a terrible situation like this. And AEW is worse off for it. And everybody involved is worse off for it. And that just really sucks. Yeah, you absolutely nailed it. It was an avoidable situation had it been nipped in the bud at the appropriate time, but the lack of leadership and accountability and discipline in what is a young company that is in some ways trying to attack professional wrestling from a different way, it allowed something to fester and it allowed situations to build upon each other and it exploded once. And in that moment where it exploded, it was another chance to say, we're going to cut this off before it gets worse and we're going to move forward 
and lean on all of the success that we have. And instead, that did not happen. It continued. It festered even further. And it blew up pretty much two months after the second try uh, was attempted. And again, avoidable and preventable and extremely, extremely unfortunate the way it transpired. But look, we here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, you know, Chris and I both have not just journalism backgrounds, we actively work in the industry and we do not work in the professional wrestling journalism industry, which, you know, we're not trying to denigrate it in any way, but we are saying that it is different from what we do on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, to call someone a fanboy or to suggest that we're carrying the water for anybody, folks, I mean, you don't necessarily know the type of wrestling I liked when Punk was in WWE, but you know that I'm not a huge fan of the Young Bucks, and I was a huge CM Punk fan for a very, very long time. So if there was anyone whose water I would potentially carry, it would be CM Punk, except, as Chris stated, I attacked this from the position of someone who manages dozens of people who saw through what was happening and was concerned literally for AEW and Tony Khan and the future of the company, the health of the company, um, the wrestlers involved. And it was very clear that what happened the night of Brawl Out was a line of demarcation, for lack of a better term, where a decision could have been made and everything would have been calm and the company would have moved forward and still been successful because at that point, it was already massively successful and continuing to grow. Or a decision could have been made to not do that and and try it a second time. And if that happened, it was inevitably going to blow up. Did I think it would blow up two months after collision started? It happened a little bit sooner than perhaps I would have thought. But again, as stated a year ago, if I had been, let's say, in control of AEW or if it was my decision to make, the opportunity would not have presented itself for it to blow up a second time because it all would have ended the first time it happened at Brawl Out pretty much one year ago from right now. So Chris, I appreciate you indulging me a little bit there at the end. And I also value your contributions, of course, through this entire CM Punk conversation, along with our AEW all out instant analysis. We pretty much gave you guys a double episode tonight. And again, this was our 10th episode in the last two weeks, in some cases for better, and unfortunately, in many cases, for worse. But as we move forward here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, we're going back, folks, to two shows a week, at least for the foreseeable future. Hopefully, nothing else crazy goes down. So coming up here on Getting Over this coming Tuesday, we will have your WWE payback fallout, along with analysis of what happened on SmackDown last Friday, plus Raw this coming Monday. We will also, this coming Thursday, have your AEW all-in slash all-out fallout, I guess, edition, along with conversations about NXT. So two shows coming up this week. If you did not hear them yet, be sure to listen back to our WWE Payback Instant Analysis podcast from Saturday. And we also put together what I believe is a really touching memorial episode for Bray Wyatt and Terry Funk two weeks ago. I'm very proud of it. And I love the feedback that we've gotten. It means a lot that it meant so much to all of you. So please go listen to that as well. On the way out, reminders as always first that we here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about 
Defied. So please, especially now, head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. Also, the next time we have premium live events and pay-per-views, you will be able to vote in our pre- and post-show polls. And you saw how we utilize those here. I will also note, I got a ton of DMs and tweets from you guys over the weekend. We will try to incorporate those into our shows on Tuesday and Thursday. Lastly, please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for five bucks a month or $50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Please visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over and subscribe. What you will get is news posts every week, bonus audio episodes anywhere from two to four. We try to hit you with four as often as we can. And your financial contributions directly support the Silver King, Vintage, and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening to this show and listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. For Vintage Chris Vanini, this is the Silver King Adam Silverstein signing off for the 10th time in the last two weeks and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.